Okay, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, at the beginning of the Bible. Now, hopefully, uh, as you walked in, you would have received another handout. We like to give you handouts. Uh, we're not terribly eco-friendly here. All the trees being felled for our handouts. Has everyone got one of those? Yeah, thumbs up. Excellent, wonderful. These are important, as you will find out today, because um, as we start our spanking new series uh, on the life of Joseph, our final instalment over the last four years, we've been walking our way through the book of Genesis of a block at a time. Today, we come into the final furlong. Uh, That's right, looking at the man Joseph. Now, we're going to be spending some time today looking at his family. Okay, families are a vital, important part of the Bible. If you're anything like me, when you look at that big list of names on the front, let's be honest, sometimes we switch off just a little bit, don't we? And we go through those quickly and we go, right, whatever, let's just get onto the meat of the the passage, Tom. No, no, the Bible is perfect. Say perfect, perfect. Every part of it is God-breathed, it says in the New Testament. Every part of it is valuable. So today we're going to be spending some time looking at the family of Joseph. And if you don't know much about, and the reason that therefore we've given you this handout is so you can follow me as we talk about people who have long, complicated names, okay? So make sure you have that in your paws. But the thing about Joseph, if you just want to kind of a bit of a summary, is this. He is one of the most shiny characters in the whole of the, of the Old Testament. And what do I mean when I say shiny? I just mean one of the things about the Bible is it is raw, it is beautifully nitty gritty. It shows you the, the positives of people, but it really shows you the mistakes. So if you're new to Christianity, maybe looking into it, one of the things you'll probably love about it is that you read it and you think, oh my goodness, is that in the Bible? That's like, that's like a, something out of EastEnders. Do you know what I mean? That's like a kind of, you know, there's elements of these people's lives that God wants us to know. The reason being so that the thing in your life, even again referring back to that word, those things that we try to cover up, the things in our life that aren't pretty and we want no one to know about, the mistakes we've made, etc., don't discount us. But actually, God can still use those things, redeem them so that we can still be used by him. So when we look in the Bible, one of the big things you often see is characters. We start off thinking they're brilliant and then we end up thinking, hmm, actually, they're not so great. They're kind of very, very, uh, very faulty. But one of the amazing things about Joseph, along probably with a guy called Daniel in the Old Testament, is that you can virtually find nowhere in this story which in any way makes him look bad. I mean, there's a little incident we're going to read today that some commentators leap upon and go, oh, just because I think they're so desperate to make him out to be bad. But I think you have to admit, Joseph, along with Daniel in the Old Testament, is one of the most breathtakingly godly men in the whole of the Bible. He is amazing. One commentator humorously points out that you've got um, two, two chapters in the Bible devoted to telling us about the creation of the entire universe and 13 for Joseph. So there's a little indication that this guy is seriously significant. So I hope you've dusted off your biros and your pencils and you're ready to scribble a bit because we have to understand this guy is a man who has incredible integrity and incredible influence. He really is, hence the title for this series. And our vision as a team is that this would not just be a theological exercise. This wouldn't just be a nice little exegesis of some of the Bible. But you, the church, would be equipped with a a wonderful vision of how you can have an extraordinary life. That you can have a life of incredible integrity. That you don't have to actually make the mistake sometimes you think I'm always going to be like that. But as we look at this man, Joseph, we will be encouraged and challenged and something in us will be uh, stirred to think, I want to be like him. And the amazing truth is this, is that God wants that. God wants each of you in your workplaces, in your spheres of influence, with your families, with your neighbours. God wants a people of integrity and influence. In an age of WikiLeaks and things coming out left, right and centre and politicians that we could trust suddenly being exposed as complete frauds all the time, God wants his local church to be full of normal men and women, but who are shining examples of integrity. And therefore, their influence is not negative, but positive. Amen? That's the point of this this goal, of of the goal of this series. However, if we were only to look at it through those eyes, if we were just to look at it and go, okay, right, roll up my sleeves, I've got to try and be like Joseph. Or if you're a girl, I've got to be, you know, Josie. I've got to be, you know, sorry, bad joke. We've got to try and be like this guy. If that was the only way that we looked at this man, do you know what we would feel? Pressure. You could probably even sense it now. 
You know when there's someone who's just amazing at everything? You're kind of like, oh, great. But yet there's a pressure that we can feel that actually isn't that helpful, but can actually make us feel condemned. We could read the person of Joseph, and if we just read it at one human level, we'd go, gosh, it just makes me feel even worse because he's so blimmin' perfect. And the second thing, the other mistake we could make is this. We could actually give more glory to Joseph than God. That would be very possible because Joseph is so amazing. He's so clearly a bit of a one in a million. We could easily look at Joseph and actually unconsciously for this bit of the Bible be thinking, Joseph, 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 Joseph. Whereas actually God wants today, right at the beginning of this, hello, absolutely. God wants us today to be filled with a perspective that it is God, it is God who makes Joseph who he is. Does that make sense? Yes? Some people, I know I'm one of these, for example, I couldn't barely lead myself, let alone lead a blimmin' church. And people who nearly know me know that's true. It is an overt, extraordinary thing that it is me leading this church. Standing in front of hundreds of people makes me feel physically nauseous. So when you have someone like that, you can clearly see God is doing it. When you have someone who's very naturally gifted in those kind of ways, very naturally a leader, very naturally good at oratory, sometimes we can get confused in our mind and sort of think it's more about the person than it is with God. And that's the danger with Joseph because he's so amazing. And so today I just want to really, really lay a foundation so that as we look at this sparkly man who is amazing and seems to have kind of no sin, that actually, and he does by the way of course, we will be very clear today that actually this as much as any part of the Bible is about God. It's about God. Therefore, if it's about God, not ultimately Joseph, guess what? He's the same God yesterday, today and forever. And so he's the same God for each of you sitting here today. And therefore the pressure to try and be like him goes and faith rises. You think, well, if it's the same God of Joseph, then hey, I can actually maybe have a life of significance and influence like Joseph. Amen? That's what I want to do today. And I want to do it in a really specific area of his life, his family. Because I think our family life, more than almost anything, shapes us, moulds us, and often can be both blessing, but also can be really challenging. And what is so brilliant about the passage we look at today is that I want to show the hand of God even right at the start of his life. In ways that we could almost miss, I want to show that God was at work, even in the family, as difficult as it was, God was at work And that's because I guarantee in a room like this, there'll be hundreds of you. Many of you have had some good aspects to your family and some aspects, to be honest with you, that were harsh. And I hope today, as we we start by looking at his family and realising God was in control, even here, that we will be those that realise that nothing has happened by accident. Nothing is out of his control. And in fact, even the tougher things that have happened in your life, God can redeem. He can use ultimately to shape you for his glory. So let's read then Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zelphar, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Joseph loved, sorry, now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that your Bible is perfect, Lord, and we just want to submit to the truth today. And I pray, Lord God, that you will draw very close to us in these moments, and that you will encourage us, guide us, shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, I have three points today. You may be uh, unsurprised to hear. Uh, First point is this, the principle of providence. Secondly, the practice of providence. And thirdly, the purpose of providence. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Tom, what's this word providence? Isn't that an area of France or something? You know, why are we talking about this thing, providence? Well, Providence is a specific term that isn't new, but I just want to give full credit here to the following section that I'm going to be speaking on to a a pastor called Mark Driscoll, who I think brilliantly unpacks what I'm going to attempt to do in the next few minutes. Is this, is that if we're going to understand the humanity and the reality of the life of Joseph, 
the family life that he was in, the, the rawness of it, not as some accident that happened, but actually in the sovereignty of God, God's deliberate choice. If we can understand that, in fact, if we're going to see throughout his life just amazing coincidences that happen again and again, we have to get our minds and our hearts around this very, very important principle of providence. So first of all, then let's look at then what I mean by that, the principle of providence. First of all, this is that there are probably two ways that we can clearly see in Scripture that God leads us, that God speaks to us, that God, as it were, guides us in our life. Two ways. You ready? First way is this, is through the seen hand of miracles. It's through the overt seen hand of the miraculous. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this, is that God, thus far in the Bible, has again and again chosen to, in an overt and explicit and stunning way, suspend the laws of physics, suspend the laws of nature and creation, and break in and display with utter jaw-dropping obviousness that he is real, that God is here, that God is present. So for example, in Abraham, who was the great-grandfather of Joseph, any of you guys know much about Abraham will know that his life was marked by the seen hand of miracles. Think about it. His call, normal guy walking along in the Middle East, bomb, out of nowhere, God speaks to him. A guy just minding his own business in the Middle East. God speaks to him miraculously, showing him that God is real and calls him on the great adventure that we've been studying. The seen hand of the miraculous. We then know that God then instigates a covenant with him a few chapters later. Now, this isn't just like, you know, a subtle affair. When you read the chapter, it's overt, miraculous, extraordinary thing where God shows his reality in a stunning, supernatural, miraculous way. Then, third miracle we can trace. We then see that God promises to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, just keeping you wait there, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, he promises to them a baby. Oh, big surprise, you might say. That's not miraculous. It is when you're 100, okay? It is. Now, I know they lived a bit longer in those days, but nevertheless, you know, we have a, we have a doctor here. That is fairly miraculous. My granny uh, is 96. I think she might be 97. And she's sort of been in and out of hospital in the last few weeks. The idea of her having a baby is grotesque, if I'm honest with you. It's just just a very strange, odd idea of Granny Shaw giving birth. You know, I I don't really want to go there in my mind. It's bizarre and it's totally miraculous, okay? It's miraculous. Say miraculous. Just checking you there. It's miraculous. It's amazing. This actually really happened. It really happened. The seen hand of the miraculous. And then... Uh, One of the most famous instances in the Bible, God leads Abraham to apparently sacrifice his son to test his obedience. At the 11th hour, God intervenes and he miraculously demonstrates his reality by supplying a ram which is sacrificed in the place of his son. It's a kind of, you know, jaw-dropping moment. Could have go back and read it if you haven't ever read it. The miraculous hand of God. Then we see with Isaac, the son who I've just mentioned, who at this moment when the ram incident happened probably was about 20. He wasn't like a boy. He was like a man, a young man. And so obviously Isaac himself, one of his earliest memories was, thank goodness that God does do miracles or else I'd be toast. You know, the reason I'm alive is because this ram appeared out of nowhere and God said, okay, well done, Abraham. I can trust you. Here, let's do business with the ram instead of your son. Isaac himself was being very aware of the seen hand of the miraculous. And then finally, his son, Jacob, that we studied a year ago, Jacob himself, his life was absolutely peppered with the seen hand of the miraculous. So, for example, he has a dream early on in his life. And this isn't just like, a, you know, oh, I had a dream last night. This is like mental. This is like a dream like no other. A dream where God himself appears to him. And there's this staircase incident, and there's angels going up and down. Anyone have a dream like this? I haven't. A dream where it displays the overt, miraculous hand of God. And then, even more amazing, we just get so blase about it. He then, it, it, then we hear about an incident where he wrestles with God. He wrestles with what appears to be a pre-incarnation incarnation of, of God. And it's just, it's either with an angel that's just like God, or it's one of those slightly mysterious figures we don't quite know. It appears to be God himself wrestling with with Jacob. 
And we sit here and we don't respond. We go, yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of miraculous, isn't it? Can you, have you ever wrestled with God? Anyone here? No? No, no, no wrestlings with God yet? No. So these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all right, they were familiar with the seen hand of the miraculous. And I just want to say this, is that we have the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? Amen. We do. Oh, church in East Kent in the 21st century. This isn't just some sort of fable that we find inspiring. This is telling us about our God. So it leads us to conclude, well, wait a minute. Orthodox Christianity, whatever label or denomination has on it, is irrelevant. If we believe God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob before we even get to Jesus, we must believe in the overt seen hand of the miraculous. Amen. That's why I do and many of us do healing on the streets as an example. Out there yesterday, young chap, Jeremy, 13 had lots and lots of problems with his knees for a long long time in real pain he sits down we lay our hands on him and instantly there's a warmth going through his knees instantly he starts smiling instantly he's healed his legs have full mobility and all pain all difficulty has gone instantly on the streets of Canterbury you can clap it's quite happy it's quite exciting yeah that's good it's amazing now I know he's just knees but if you've got sore blooming knees it matters Believe me, pain is not what God wants for us long term. It's amazing the way when God does this, when God intervenes, God comes in. And I just want us to keep saying, Lord, do more. Don't let it be that we just become some nice little neat church with nice cool banners and you know, bands that can do good music. No, no, the church of Jesus Christ is by its definition supernatural. And you may come from a church background which thinks, oh, wacky, wacky, here they go, city church. We're not even on the New Testament, okay? This is Abraham. He's pretty safe. Isaac, he's the seen hand of the miraculous. Say it, the seen hand of the miraculous. It's a major way that God speaks. But it is not the only way that God speaks. And you may be here and you may say, Tom, I've never seen a miracle that I know of. I've never seen the overt, supernatural, miraculous of God. What does that mean? Well, this is the amazing thing. Is that as Mark Driscoll points out, the other way that God speaks is through the unseen hand of providence. Say the unseen hand of providence. The unseen hand of providence. And what does that mean? What it means is this. In, that in no less miraculous a way, but more subtle a way, This is the theological truth that the Bible tells us that nothing but nothing happens because of chance. Nothing just happens. That God in his sovereignty and in his providential care is active at work in every single dimension of this universe is that this is the case, this is the truth of God behind the scenes, as it were, in ways that are more subtle and more covert, less overt and explicit. God at work in every way. The parents that you were born with was not an accident, but it was the providential providential, uh, care of God for good or ill. The the eye colour that you have, the type of hairstyle, the hair colouring and the hair shape that you have. The fact that you grew up in a certain town or a certain city, it's not an accident, it's the providential, deliberate, specific intention of God. The gifts that you have and the gifts that you don't have is the providential, specific call of God. The providential care, the unseen hand of God, the school that you went to, the mates that you had, the music that you liked, the food that you like, the food that you don't like. God himself in the most microscopic details, this is what the Bible tells us. The experiences you've had that were positive, the experiences you've had that were negative. The Bible tells us that God brings blessing and he allows challenge. This is the God of the Bible. And this is the equal and opposite, well not opposite, but different way that the God of the Bible leads and guides and shapes us is through the unseen hand of providence. Turning your Bibles to Genesis 50, just a few pages over. Genesis 50 in verse 20. This is a very key verse for us to have in our souls at the beginning as we're about to read about a guy who goes through deep persecution, trials and difficulties Verse 20, this is Joseph saying, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. This is talking to his brothers, who we're going to find out later. Don't treat him well. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
It says in Romans 8, 28, it says, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Now, this is, I know, this is, this is where we get the sovereignty of God and the big theological thing. Well, what about this? And that? This, is, this is hard for us to get our, our minds and our heads around. I know that. But this is a foundational truth we have to have in our hearts and our souls as we approach Joseph. And I'll tell you why this. Because Joseph's life, as far as I can see, there is not a single incident of the seen hand of the miraculous. With Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's miracles, miracles, miracles. And then suddenly with Joseph, not that I can see, there is, a, there is not a single incident of the overt seen hand of miraculous. And yet when you know the story... It is this breathtaking demonstration of the unseen hand of providence. Things happening, oh, by coincidence. Oh, and then this just happened to happen. And then this just happened to happen. And when you get this truth in your soul, believe me, friends, there's no such thing as just another Monday morning. Because suddenly you become acutely aware. Your life becomes almost electrified with the truth that nothing happens by chance, that God is providentially shaping, orchestrating every element of your life. Now this truth of, a truth of providence, let me just quickly say, sets Christianity aside from some of the biggest other religions and some of the other main world thoughts and philosophies that you and I are being preached to the whole time. Take, for example, deism. Deism is this. God created everything, started it, but then he's gone on holiday. Okay? He's not actually actively involved and things just sort of happen and God's over here. Okay? Christianity says, no, actually God is in control. Deism says that what happened to Gary Moore, many of you whom you all know, two and a half weeks ago when his car, first thing in the morning, flew off the, off the road, smashed into a tree, burst into flames. He was trapped, thinking he was going to die. And just by chance, an off-duty fireman is walking past at seven in the morning. He sees this thing whole happen. He smashes through the passenger window and for pulling, pulling, pulling Gary, who's a big guy, thinking he can't get him out. And eventually he gets him out and the whole car goes up in flames. Deism says it's just, just lucky. Just happened. Christianity says, no, no, this is the providential, unseen and yet real hand of God. Amen? That's what, it's not a coincidence that that happened. So it's different from deism. And often, if we're honest, as Christians, we can be secret deists without realising it. Often we can think we kind of we believe in God, but to think he's actually actively really involved with everything, I'm not sure. Deism says that God is removed and he's over there. The other opposite but equally damaging heresy or wrong view is that of pantheism, which actually is incredibly popular right now. Probably not called pantheism, very much in the new age um, sort of world. Many of you would have experienced friends. And the, the, the view of this is, is that God is not out there, but he is literally in everything. He's literally in everything. Anyone here seen Pocahontas? Yeah? Most of us have seen Pocahontas. There's a bit where Pocahontas goes to talk to the tree. A few bits, I think, actually. The tree is the grandmother. Now, we can just think, oh, it's just a silly little relevant thing. That's pantheism. That's pantheism. My, my daughters were watching that going, so what's that then, Dad? Why is there a funny lady in the tree? And I can either just go, oh, well, actually, it's an ancient heresy that we have to teach our young people and be taught ourselves that that is not Christianity. God doesn't live in a tree. He is separate from creation. That is the whole point of Romans 1. If you read Romans 1, it says that the major fault that's gone wrong with this earth is that we have swapped worship of the creator for worship of the creation. That's it. Be alert to it. Hollywood is rife with it. And it, we kind of think, well, we kind of think God's everywhere. So is it that different? Believe me, it is. It really is. So it's different from pantheism. It's different from the, from the philosophy of that everything is random. That's a massively popular thing. God, it's just random. Your life is random. You know, you just were here and you're randomly happening. That's not actually true. The unseen hand of providence says that you are not random. That you are utterly deliberate. That you are, as we heard earlier on, you are someone who is being shaped by God to grow in being someone who's like him. You know, I had um, a conversation with a, a chap this week who said when he was 13, he felt the presence of God in a very distinct and real and a sort of emotional way. But since that moment, he has not felt in an emotional, fuzzy feeling, as it were, the presence of God at all. However, he then said, but I know the fact that when I filled in my UCAS form, 
filled in five places, three of which didn't get back to me. The only two that got back to me and offered me a place were both in Canterbury. Isn't that interesting? And he said, I, but I see, therefore, that even though I haven't had a fuzzy feeling in the way that others might have, and I want that more, and I want to know God's presence, I also can see the unseen providential hand of God, even in those things, and that God is just as close to me in those ways, in shaping my life by coincidence, than actually the other more overt ways. That makes sense. So it's different from the whole philosophy of randomism, if that's a word, and also from fatalism. Which is this, is basically no matter what you do, whatever you do, it doesn't really matter. Which actually is the undercurrent really for Islam. Is that ultimately it's irrelevant what you do because it's all completely and utterly uh, already fatally worked out. And actually Christianity would say no, although God is overarching, we are still responsible. The choices that we make still matter. So, okay, thinking, right, lecture, lecture over. So it's different from all those ways. I, I get that. Let's get a bit meaty, shall we? Let's get into some actual practical examples of God's providential care and allowance in the life of Joseph. So let's look at the practice then of providence as well as the principle. And today I want to really uh, not rush over where the Bible starts here in this section with his family. Because you see, I think our family life can shape us more than we realise. And I think often if you watch telly and you see really sort of successful people who um, have made a real success in their life, often when they think about their families, particularly if their family life wasn't that great, they almost kind of don't want to talk about it too much. And it's like I broke free and I, I almost, you know, it's like despite my family and that awful thing, I have become the success I am. You can almost get that feel. But if we believe that God is providentially in control all the time, that even where situations have been challenging and there have been difficulties, we've got to conclude that actually God was still involved and allowing things to occur, even in tough situations. And the amazing truth is, that is what we see with Joseph. If we were just to look at the shiny part of his life and just not really think about his family, we could think, well, you know, maybe he just had this some great family. But what is amazing is we're about to discover is that this truth of God's providential allowance and care in his family life means that his family life was, as I've already said, like a scene out of EastEnders, rather than some sort of perfect shiny thing. So at the point at which we've just read, Joseph is 17 years old. Okay, So some of you here might be approaching 17, around the age of 17. Just as a throwaway application here, Joseph is mature, okay? He says here he brought a bad report about his brothers. Now, some commentators leap on that and make him out to be horrendous for doing that. Personally, I think clearly there was something that had occurred with his brothers. We don't know what it is. That meant he had to tell his father. I think actually this is an example of him demonstrating integrity. And this is the point, is you can be young, you can be a teenager and have integrity and maturity. You don't have to be a teenager and waste your life because that's the kind of cultural expectation of you. You can be someone who actually, like Joseph, is someone who shines out even at age 17 and inspires people twice, three times his age, years later as we read about him. He's 17, but he's mature. You can be 17 and immature spiritually. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is not about age. It's about maturity or immaturity. But we see here a man of real maturity. But I want us to sort of sense, smell almost, to be really living in the life of what it was like for this 17-year-old. What was his actual family life like? Because I believe, believe me, it will help us as we go on our journey in the coming weeks if we understand accurately what his life was like, what his emotions were towards those closest to him. Let's start with his dad. What was Joseph's dad called? Jacob, thank you. Jacob. His dad was called Jacob, and we spent about two months last year looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob had some, I'm sure, good elements to his life, but what is very clear is that Jacob was flawed. He was chosen by God, but he was very flawed. For example, in Genesis 25 and 27, he rips off, first of all, his brother Esau, and then he rips off his dad, Isaac. So deceit, in some ways, was a part of his life. Think about that. If you're Joseph and you know that your dad ripped off his brother and his dad, your grandfather, you're going to have at least some level of mixed emotions about your dad when it comes to his integrity. We then uh, uh, learn later on in Genesis 30 that he, uh, 
He was conned into marrying a lady, to be fair to the guy. But it says that he hated her, this woman Leah. He hated her, and yet repeatedly he slept with her, again and again. And I think, again, for someone like Joseph, a man of real integrity, he may have struggled a little bit in his mind about his dad, thinking, I'm not sure that was really the most godly thing to do, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know really what the, the solution would be, but to be honest with you, to say in Scripture that he, hates, he hated her and yet repeatedly slept with her, it again would have caused maybe even disgust or difficult emotions in the life of Joseph towards his dad. We then find later on a really shocking incident in Genesis uh, 30, oh, sorry, 34, is that, uh, is that um, Joseph's uh, sister, Dinah, she's raped. She's attacked and raped. But the really shocking part is that there's no record of Jacob tearing his clothes and getting emotional and upset about this. There is. He does that later on when there's another death. He, he tears his clothes, which was a sign of getting deeply distressed. There's total silence. Now, I know we can't know for sure that he wasn't upset. But I wonder whether God's trying to tell us something about the emotional kind of deadness of this guy, certainly towards his daughter. It's a shocking incident. Joseph, I'm sure, would have felt really defensive and protective for her. But his father apparently has little or no emotion. How would Joseph have felt about his dad knowing that? But we also find out that his dad made him the favourite. He was the favourite. Now, again, that kind of would have been flattering at one level. But, you know, that would have also set him up for the most difficult of life. Favouritism from parents is awful. It is awful. And Jacob does not do well on this. He overt, I mean, he makes him a coat which just screams out, you're my favourite. You know, he might as well just had a bullseye on his back. Thanks, Dad, this is groovy. You know, he, he overtly has a favourite, it seems. How would that have made him feel? Kind of flattered, but probably a bit disrespect, almost a bit like, how do I respect my dad? This is so wrong. But also, his brothers who are like, I'm going to, you know, he's going to feel resentment towards his dad for putting him in that position. A whole mixture of emotions this poor 17-year-old is having to deal with. How do I feel about my dad? So that's just one, okay? What would he have felt about his dad? Let's just say a mixture of emotions, all right? And he would have been tempted to think, you know, this whole thing about God being providentially in, in control, Tom, I don't think so, all right? My dad had some good things, but there was an awful lot that very, very difficult about him. Are you really telling me that God was allowing that for a reason? Well, we shall find out. Then, what about his half, sorry, about his mum? How would he fight towards his mum? Well, we know that his mum unfortunately died. Rachel died whilst giving birth to uh, Benjamin, who we'll mention a bit later on. But in Genesis 33, it talks about her dying. How would have you felt knowing his mum had died? That would have been sorrow, deep sorrow that he would have felt. He may have even felt resentment, to be honest with you, thinking, Mum, why did you have to have another baby? Oh, Mum, I wish you'd been content. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But he would have had deep emotions about not having a mum as he grew up. It would have been a difficult and challenging thing. What about his half-mum, his stepmum, Leah? The lady that I mentioned earlier that Jacob, who was married to her, hated I mean, how would he have, how, what emotions would he feel about this woman who was around, but that he knew his dad hated? How, I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing, but maybe he kind of felt pity for this woman. Or maybe he kind of felt, well, I don't know. Maybe he kind of got caught up in his dad's negative feelings towards her and also thought, well, yeah, maybe I should not like her as well. Sometimes, I know if we have step-parents, at times we can get, it can be a whole mixture of emotions and how we should feel about them is not a simple thing at all. This guy had a really tough upbringing. Finally, his brothers. His brothers. We can't mention them all today, but let me just highlight a couple, a few. Simeon and Levi. What do we know about Simeon and Levi? Well, they killed someone. They killed more than one person. In fact, they killed at least a couple of people. The people who, who uh, raped uh, his daughter, they, it says in uh, Genesis 34, it says they go out and they kill them. Now, at one level, you read that, and because his dad was so passive, you kind of think, well, something got done. But really, the reality of having a, a brother who, who had actually killed other people, that would be, that'd be tough, wouldn't it? How would you feel intimidated? You know, you don't want to get in a fight with him. <laughs> you know, what's going to happen? Well, you might have even felt, not intimidated, but you might have even felt inferior. You know, 
If you get, they're like the real tough boys, yeah? This is how men should be. Sort it out. And maybe Joseph was a bit more delicate, a bit more creative or something. He might have thought, my, you know, I just feel a bit inferior. Is God really in this? He might have even thought, God's going to much prefer, you know, an alpha male like Simeon and Levi. I'm just Joseph. You know, I didn't go and do that. Who knows what he would have felt? But he probably would have felt a whole mixture of emotions about Simeon and Levi. Reuben was another brother. But what do we know about him? Genesis 35, shockingly, it says, it seems almost just moments after Joseph's mum, Rachel, has died, he sleeps with one of his dad's concubines. So that's almost like a stepmum, okay? Someone that would have had that maternal role in their wider family. He sleeps with her. That's shocking, isn't it? The Bible's shocking. How would he have felt? I mean, knowing this man of integrity, knowing his brother, Reuben, did that. Every time he saw him, he probably thought, hmm, my brother Reuben, you know? It's difficult. Maybe you had in your life stuff happen that was just out of your control. And that actually was harsh, really difficult. And almost you feel, I don't know, maybe tainted or something by it. Finally, Benjamin. We know that Benjamin is the final son born. Benjamin was born and it was through him being born that his mum and Joseph's mum, Rachel, died. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. What would it have been like to have Benjamin as your brother? One level, you probably would have felt, if you're honest, maybe he was a constant reminder of the mum that you never really knew. Maybe you would have felt a little bit resentful. Or maybe Benjamin was just completely guilt-ridden. Maybe he just whole of his life he thought I was the reason my mum died and he might have therefore been an emotional guy up and down always feeling guilty maybe he was always saying to Joseph Joseph I feel terrible and maybe Joseph was constantly having to be the strong one having to lift him up some of you guys would have had to be the strong one in your family maybe even a young age you were the one that for whatever reason that was the role you had to take and that was actually really hard and in that situation, Joseph, he might have thought, is God really in control? This doesn't feel like it should be, okay? This does not feel how like it should be. Or maybe that's you today. Maybe you're thinking, Tom, I struggle with this idea that God is unseen in the, in the, in the background, always working things out. That sounds Christian mumbo-jumbo. I can't really believe that. But this is the amazing thing. As we come to our final third point, as we land today, is this. There is a stunning purpose in the providence of God. Was it just that God allowed those things to happen? Some of them positive, many of them challenging. Was it just that God allowed them to happen? No. If you go back to Genesis chapter 50, you may already still have it open, that we looked at a moment ago, it gives us the answer as to the purpose of providence. Genesis 50, verse 20, the second half though. As, you meant, as, you, uh, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about, listen to this, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's he saying there? The story is this, and I'll do my best to summarize it if you don't know. The story that's going to come, and this is at the end of the story, is that we're at the beginning. His brothers, in the next few verses, are going to, when, when it says they meant it for evil, what he's talking about is the fact that they want to kill him. And they throw him in a pit thinking that's going to kill him. But then what amazingly happens, like I've seen at Hollywood, he gets rescued. He then uh, is a slave. He then is tempted by the wife of the person who he's the slave to, but he does well. Yay! And he, does, he resists the temptation. He then, though, she tells a lie on him and he gets, she gets thrown into jail. But in jail, he does amazingly well. And actually, even though he's forgotten for many years, eventually gets promoted to being the person who actually is the leader of Egypt. He interprets dreams that Pharaoh is searching for. And so eventually he becomes the leader of this nation. And in that position of influence, God gives him the wisdom to say, hey, listen, a famine is coming. No one in the world knows it. Get all the food ready now so that when it happens, you'll be all right, you'll survive. And so what we see is he does that. And so when the famine hits the world, Egypt alone is the place rich with food. And we see that eventually even his biological family, his brothers, come wanting food. They have no idea this is Joseph. It's amazing. I've given this whole plot away. Sorry about that. They come, they come wanting food. And he's like, it's my brother or my son, if you're the dad. It's amazing. Now, this is the point. God had a reason for allowing the evil that happened to him. 
What they meant for evil, the brothers were doing this, throwing him into a pit, wanting to see him murdered. They, had it, they did that because of murderous reasons. But all along, the God of the Bible, the sovereign, providential, ruling King of kings and Lord of lords, allowed it, as difficult as it was, because he knew then the rest of the things would happen that I've just explained, and eventually he would be the saviour of that nation the saviour of his biological family, and so that his family one day, their son, 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 grandson, 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 would be Jesus, who would be the saviour of the world. You can applause if you want, thank you for that very long narrative I've just done. But it's amazing what God's done. And this is the point. He says God allowed this because he had a plan. God providentially allowed the difficult things and the good things to occur because he had a purpose. And friends, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety is all about. How do you say? How does that connect? Let me explain. The life, the death, and the resurrection and outpouring of the Spirit, the three main elements, as it were, of the gospel, are all about the providence of God. The life of Jesus, who is the true and better Joseph... Joseph is this amazing type, the Bible says, this sort of foreshadowing of this amazing, really, truly perfect person called Jesus, who comes onto earth 2,000 years ago as the great fulfillment of the ages. And what we see in the life of Jesus is the perfect model of a life, trusting a God of providence. Throughout his life, Jesus had many of the struggles that you've had and I've had and Joseph had. He grew up in a very normal family with a young mum and a dad who was a humble carpenter. He grew up in Nowheresville, Nazareth. He grew up not with 12 brothers, but with 12 disciples, most of whom turned their back on him. One very specifically did. It's amazing the parallels that we see. Jesus knows what it is like, like Joseph, to be exalted by God into a position of influence and to have jealousy and intimidation all around him. He knows what it's like to have people plotting to murder you, as Joseph did. But he actually knows what it's like to literally be murdered, because he, he wasn't just almost murdered, he really was murdered. You see, Jesus' life, which is the starting place of the gospel, is the most perfect demonstration to us here today. This is how you trust a God who providentially, in the unseen ways, is working everything out for your good. This is how, look at my life. I love 1 Peter. It says, even when he was reviled, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. I love that. He just this picture of Jesus, like the true and better Joseph, who even when everything was against him, even his own family turning the back on him, he never doubted the providential unseen but real hand of God he was immaculate and perfect and if you don't know Jesus and you're impressed with Joseph believe me he ain't nothing compared with Jesus he's stunning he's breathtaking he is the son of God and he's alive today his life shows us it models to us it inspires us but more than that his death and I love this the best bit his death pays for the privilege the privilege of providence. What do I mean by that? Is this is that in Jesus' life, because he went through what we go through, we can never say to God, Oh God, you're like a master chess player. You just use Joseph for your greater purposes. You don't know what it's like. We can't level God with that kind of criticism because in his son, his son went through even worse what Joseph went through. So that takes that one off. But you might be sitting here thinking, Tom, that's not my question. My question about this whole providence thing is this How can God treat me or other people who are sinful with such care? and love, and meticulous attention. That should be our question. Because the Bible tells us God is holy, perfect, awesome. Every single human who's ever been born is born into sin, separate from God, deserving nothing but judgment. That is what the Bible tells us. So the massive question we should be sitting here with is, this doesn't make sense. How can God be so good to Joseph? Yes, there's challenges, but he also gets raised up, he gets blessed. How does this happen? And this is where the gospel comes screaming through, is that when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus is the one man who never deserved any punishment. He was drenched with your sin and my sin, my evil thoughts, my lust, my envy, my jealousy, my wrongful anger, my self-righteousness was poured on him so that he suffered the wrath that I should have suffered. And I was given his perfection, his righteousness, is what it says 2 Corinthians 5, as a free gift. Joseph was able 
able to be blessed by God because his sins had already been dealt with at the cross. Hallelujah! It's amazing. That's how Joseph, even though he was sinful and deserved nothing but judgment, was able to live his life, yes, with challenge, but also with a God who was all the time, even when it was challenging, was wanting the better good. That's how it is. The cross pays for the privilege of our providential care by God. God, whether you like it or not, Because if you're a Christian here today, you've exchanged your filthy rags for his robe of righteousness. Not a a human one, thank goodness, a real one. So that if you die tonight, you would go straight into the righteous presence of God. And there'll be no problems. He'll be, come on in daughter, come on in son. It's amazing. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And Joseph, he was blessed with the providence of God because of Jesus, the true Joseph. It's amazing. But even more than that, it gets even more amazing. Jesus then defeated death as he said he would. The Bible tells he defeated death and he was raised to glory and he poured out the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would live in us. The Spirit of Jesus now not just around us, but in us. And this means this, is whether you feel you're in a place of humiliation in your life, more like Joseph in the pit or in the prison, or whether you're in the place of honour, You've been promoted in the place of the palace. Either way, the Holy Spirit will keep you from being spoilt. He will keep you from, from, from forgetting the providential element of God. That you're only in one or the other because God is in control. Do you understand that? You might be here feeling, I am in a pit top. I feel lonely. I want a husband or a wife and I don't feel God's with me. I feel like I want to buy a house and everyone around me is buying houses, but I can't afford it. Or I want a child or I want something that makes you feel in a pit. Maybe your, your, your degree is overwhelming. Maybe your parents don't give a hoot and you feel bereft. Whatever the challenge is that you feel in a pit is this. The Holy Spirit, his coming upon us, supernaturally empowers us. So that the promise in Bible that God will not test us beyond that which we can bear is true. And it won't necessarily be easy. It would have been hard for Joseph. But it says in Acts 7, it says, for God was with him. That's your only hope. But if you're a Christian, you can celebrate the fact that that is true, that God is with you. My friend Mike Betts, his wife, for 20 years, has had chronic, ongoing pain in her back, agonising pain. They've tried everything. They've prayed for healing again and again. They've had operations. Nothing. In fact, it's made it worse. And yet she's never grumbled. And she, Mike would say, is 10 times the more amazing person than even he is. She's not on the platform. She's just, you know, humbly in the background. But she would be the first to say, the only way I can do this is by a conscious daily dependence on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So whether you're in a place of humiliation, as it were, or you're in a place of honour, and what I mean by that is God has promoted you in some way. If you're in that place, it's just, just as much a need for the Holy Spirit to help you and enable you to know that you're only there because of the providential work of God. Not because you've worked hard, not because you've deserved it, but because of the providential hand of God. It will keep us from arrogance. It will keep us from the illusion that we're independent beings rather than dependent on God for everything. That is the point of providence. Is it a coincidence that many of you here who work at Pfizer have already been exalted into a place of influence? Is it, a, is it a coincidence some of you here are doctors, have already got amazing positions of influence that on record someone of your age may not have necessarily been given? Is it a coincidence some of you in the police force are already being promoted and given positions of influence and integrity? Is it a, position, is it a coincidence that some of you are being asked to step up and lead CUs and be on execs? Is it a coincidence some of you at the school gates are already having influence or some of you are becoming school governors and having influence? Is it a coincidence? No, it's not. It's our wonderful God who is the same God of Joseph. And the lie that we have to battle with, friends, is our lives are not significant. The people in the Bible, they were significant. And this says, no, he came from a normal family and ultimately he was a normal guy, but had anything but a normal God. That's the God of Joseph. That's the story of Joseph. And let me just say this to finish. It's not just about us individually. It's about us corporately. When we think about what God is doing in this church, friends, we can see the providential, unseen and yet real hand of God all over it. Is that a coincidence that in March last year I go along to a day conference and it just happens to be all about multiple services? And at that moment I think, hmm, I have a feeling that God wants me to listen to this, even though I had no thoughts about multiple services. And then here we are, a year on, or just under, 
And all that God has been speaking to us about is being outworked. Is it a coincidence the day that we announce multiple services, the very next Sunday, we crash through any previous size records to 450 on a Sunday morning? Is that a coincidence? No. It's the providential hand of God. Is it a coincidence that God asked us to be represented at the council just a few months ago and to talk about what we did? Is that a coincidence the guy who was sitting next to me happened to be the city manager who's a Buddhist but oversees all of the, the business element of the, of the city? And I, he's basically one of the most connected guys in the, church, in, the, in the city, in the council. He then chases me for a meeting. We sit there talking for three hours about the divinity of Christ, which was the reason why I didn't become a Buddhist, but actually I became a Christian at a human level. His eyes are filling up and he's saying, this is incredible. Maybe you will convert me. Is that just a, a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that he goes out saying, do you know what? I'm going to get you a building is it a coincidence the city manager is giving his time to this thing no it's the unseen and yet providential hand of God I could go on and on and on but I don't want to bore you but our God is an amazing God who is with you he is with you and do not believe the lie that you're an accident you're here by chance what this truth does friends is it makes every day electrifying It makes every day electrify. It means every day you're thinking, what is the unseen providential hand of God going to be doing today? There's no such thing as a boring Monday morning anymore. Okay, you might think there is, but there isn't. Because God, God is at work behind the scenes in every aspect of our life. Shall we stand? We're going to worship our wonderful God. Maybe the band could come up, that'd be great. And we're going to, if you're you're a Christian here today, you'll know that breaking bread and And drinking wine is a wonderful gift from God through which we remember our saviour. We remember his body, as I've just said, that was broken. His body that was drenched in our sin so that we could come before a righteous God today. Remember his wine, the blood of Christ that was shed so that you and I could come before our saviour right now. I'd encourage you guys here who know you're Christians to come and feel free to respond to, uh, to what we've heard today. We have a wonderful uh, prayer team who will be over on my right in a few moments, your left, with red t-shirts. And they would love to pray with you if anything that has come up today has just stirred your hearts or maybe challenged you. And you thought, I just want to give that to God. Father, we do present ourselves before you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Thank you, God, that you're the same God of every man, woman, and child here today. Thank you that, Lord God, you are a God who is absolutely perfect in every single way. You are surgically accurate in every life here. Thank you, God. Even the toughest things that have been allowed to happen, I thank you, God, that in your incredible sovereignty, you can redeem, you can bring healing, and you can shape us through those tough things to actually be used for your purposes, your glory, and your fame.